my gosh, everybody. It is here. The French Village Podcast. I told you it would happen. Uh, if you're a secret podcast listener, you know I talk about it a lot. Um, I I wasn't sure. I'm going to be honest. I wasn't sure we were going to get this podcast off the ground until a twist of fate. Actually, it's not a twist of fate. It's actually very straightforward, uh, which is I have been plugging this show for so long that my good friend Ben Wittes finally decided to watch it. And as he was watching the first couple episodes, I texted him and said, hey, Ben, as you're watching this, if you feel the need to do a podcast about it, let me know. I'm up for it. And thus, Here we it are. was born. Hello. I'm so happy you're doing this with me. I'm just doing it to give, like, make JVL skin crawl. Because <laughs> I know, like, it'll bother him that you got somebody to do this with you. And just to hear the secret podcast blowback on this is actually worth seven seasons. Um, and I've only listened, watched the first two episodes, by the way. So, you know, I've, I, you're going to... The audience is going to experience this with me because I'm going to watch two episodes a week and then record this with you uh, for the weekend. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm just so, so excited. Um, and I'll tell you, so I have actually seen the entire thing from start to finish. It is about uh, 87 episodes, I believe, maybe 82 episodes. Two down, uh, 80 to go. Yeah, it, there's a lot of them. There's many seasons. Uh, it takes you... Um, I don't believe this is a spoiler, but, uh, since this show came out in 2009, um, but that it, it, it spans the entirety of their lives. So, so we spend a lot of time with them in wartime, but in the later episodes, we kind of see how they end up. One of the things I've always thought about when people do these media podcasts and they talk about television shows or movies, I've always wondered how somebody who's watched something and is now trying to talk about it. Uh, with people who haven't watched it, uh, the whole thing is is how they avoid spoilers. Um, I think there's an art to not avoiding spoilers. I am not well versed in that art, but I'm going to try to to be good about it here. Um, so and- I think, yeah, I think you have to you have to play the uh, we only talk about uh, the episodes we have watched, and we we deal with the. Uh, the uh the four corners of what we have both seen yeah i think that's good i think that's good um that'll be hard for me but i but it's good and i will tell you i did rewatch uh the first episode entirely um and enough of the second episode to know which episode it is um but i'm just gonna say a quick word about uh why i i wanted to do the podcast and, and then i'm interested uh, Ben and some of your opening remarks, but I, I started watching the French village upon the recommendation of both my father-in-law as well as, and Ben, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I were at a, a socially distanced, uh, small dinner outdoors over the summer. At the house of one Mona Charon. The house of one Mona Charon, where, um, this, it was also, I had been, my, my father-in-law had recommended it, which carries a certain amount of weight. But then uh, David Frum at that dinner party um, began talking about it. And I said, oh, you know, my father-in-law just recommended this. And he and his wife 
had had gotten the whole way through it and and uh, you know said at the time something that I've come to realize which is how much when you watch the show not the fact that it's about World War II or Nazis or any of that not that's not the part that resonates the thing that's interesting about this show is it is about what things people are willing to compromise um how how the external events um change who they are as people and also how who they are as people like how that makes them behave in this sort of stressful crazy environment where um everything's gone haywire and so um so i i i started watching it um devoured it as much as one can over months, but I watched over the last, you know, several months of the um, Trump administration leading up to the election. And um, it ended up taking on, I don't know, a bit of a special meaning. Uh, and and because I would talk about it on the secret podcast, uh, because there was so much in it that I felt like resonated with the events of the day, uh, I started, lots of people started watching it. And they started sending me emails and uh, some people like it. Some people don't, most people do like it, but there's been one or two who've kind of been like, what are you talking about? This isn't that good. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to find a way uh, to, to watch it with those people and to, to be able to, to have this ongoing conversation because there seems to be a real appetite. And also I feel personally responsible for having thrust a lot of people <laughs> into watching the French village. And I really will hope that they like it um, or at least enjoy it the same way I did. Um, so anyway, Ben, is that that's your experience, right? I basically browbeat you into watching this. Well, so you didn't browbeat me. I listen to the Secret Podcast regularly, and I have been listening to your uh, comments about it, as well as to JVL's uh, refusal to watch it. And my initial reaction, as I said recently on Rational Security, was I don't wanna I don't know, I don't like Nazi comparison pod you know podcasts sorry i don't I don't like Nazi comparisons for anything, and so you're I was initially quite suspicious of your contention that while uh you weren't really making Nazi comparisons to the current era, this was the uh best show about the Trump administration and the era that you had seen, even though it's not about it at all, and that it really made you think about complicity in this era. And I was initially pretty suspicious of that, but the more I heard you and JVL talk about it, the more I was kind of persuaded that, okay, this is an extreme version of something that at the level we have actually been going through. And at least the questions of complicity are are interesting ones to study extreme cases of, and the questions of what sort of compromises people aren't willing to make or are willing to make are interesting ones. And so I found myself increasingly persuaded that uh, it was worth trying out and so then I said I was going to, and before I knew it, you had conned me into doing a podcast with you about it. It is a con. You will be conned into other things. I'm I'm super excited about it. I'm I'm 
really okay with being conned, actually. I'm an easy mark for uh, good conversation and uh, 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 endless rumination about uh, the relationship between complicity then and complicity now. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about um, is it a show, like, let me tell you what the show is not. The show is not Schindler's List for 80 episodes. Like, I think that there's a lot of people who hear World War II or that it's about Nazis and they think, oh, like, I don't want to watch sort of the kind of Nazi porn that America has churned out over the years. Not nothing against Schindler's List, but people sort of feel like they know what it is and they're just like, you know, nobody... That, that's not, I think there's, there's oftentimes people say like, I don't know that I want to sign up for that. That's not what this show is about. This show is about uh, the people, the, the people in the town. That's, that's everything that the show, that the events happen, not somewhere else exactly, but this is not um, a show where you are sort of thrust into the concentration camps or, um, or even a lot of war or battle. Um, it is mostly people who were living, um, you know, normal lives in a in a French village that is on the the border with Switzerland, and uh, they lose the the early part of World War Two uh, to the Germans, and the Germans begin to occupy their towns, and it's more about how people work or don't work with the German occupying forces who, um, and I think, you know, this kind of takes us into the the first episode, and I'll, I guess I'll kind of jump in. The first episode is about kind of the tanks. It's the very first moment that the Germans show up. And the um, the people in the village, the early chatter is sort of, they know that this is maybe coming, but they've been hearing rumors for so long about the Germans coming that they're not really sure. And so they're all just going about their normal day, their normal lives, when uh, the Germans first show up. Ben, having watched, now that you've watched the first episode, just tell tell me your initial impressions. Well, so the initial, the first episode has none of the themes that you uh, have been talking about. There's no <laughs> questions of complicity in the first episode. They show up in a big way in the second episode. Um, but the first episode is really a tanks roll in kind of episode. Um, and it's used to set up the major characters, or at least the first set of major characters, um, and to sort of give a sense of what the major themes of their life are, uh, you know, what the baseline is for them. Uh, it's quite hard to watch. The One of the things that happens in the first episode is that a, a, a school field trip, uh, which apparently in 1940 in France meant a trip in the field, uh, like, a, like a walk, uh, they decide to go ahead with it anyway, despite the fact that the Germans are invading. And uh, the result is that a plane strafes a large number of uh, children who are out there in the field. I'm not the most squeamish pe person in the world, but I did find uh, plane strafing children uh, a tough slog uh, uh, to watch. Um, but 
I, you know, the, the major thematic content of the, of the first episode is introducing you to a bunch of characters and showing you what their lives are like kind of at the moment that the Germans march in. So it doesn't really, uh, I think the, the major, the major thematic material that interests you kind of begins with the second episode is, Am I am I missing something about the first episode or is it really kind of a setup? No, it's all set up. And then it is it is really about introducing people to these characters. And I think having watched the whole series, it was really fun to watch the first episode again, uh, despite the gruesome content, because I was having seen these people now live their lives and the way that they behave and evolve. Um, meeting them again for the first time in the places that they're in. Um in some ways, it also was like seeing old friends, uh, but also um, I was just reminded of, of of where these people started. So let's go through the main characters a little bit. So the the big ones, and you meet most of them, most of the big people who are in the show, the show follows the entire way through, um, which doesn't mean maybe some people don't get lost along the way. But uh, so you, you start out with with Dr. Larcher, uh, who is it's pronounced Larcher in French. Um, and he is he is the main character, I would say, in the show. He's sort of the beating heart of the show. And his wife, Hortense. Um, and uh, he, so he's a doctor. Uh, she is a beautiful redhead um, who I think is inappropriately uh, aged compared to him. Like, I don't know. How old do you say she is? It looked, I would say, uh, about 45-ish. You think she's 45? Um, maybe a little younger. Man, interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, well, to me, he looks 55 and she looks 30. But maybe I was uh, assuming, making assumptions based on, I, I, I actually never thought about this until the moment that you asked about it. Uh, so maybe I'm allowing my sense of his age to influence my sense of hers. Potentially, yes. Uh, but, but okay, so that didn't strike you the way that it struck me. Um, so it, then, it, it struck you as a, as a bizarre age difference? Yes. But it wouldn't have been then. Sure, yes. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, 45, I think there's... Yeah, there, she, so she couldn't be 45 because there's almost immediately an issue of... Uh, whether a baby is hers, exactly, um, and so she's got to be younger than that. So I've I, that's got to be wrong. Yeah, so I, that's right. So the the baby the baby thing is key. So one of the I, I think it's maybe if we go through the character, I think we can say the main thing that happens uh, to to Doctor Larche and his and his wife Hortense in the first episode is that he's got to go deliver a baby. Uh, there's a pregnant woman. She's Spanish, uh, and and she a migrant worked, laborer. A migrant laborer who works uh, in the sawmill of Raymond Schwartz, who is another main character, a businessman. His wife, Janine, is also uh, a key character throughout the entire show. Um, but so Dr. Larche goes to the, the sawmill, and it's interesting to see them interact because I do think, um, you know, sort of the businessman who's kind of looking for angles and the doctor, the humanist who is there to sort of help this migrant worker and cares nothing about who's a migrant who's not, just wants to help this woman. Uh, he delivers this baby uh, sort of as the as the tanks are rolling in. He says, the baby's not going to stay in the womb just because the Germans are here. 
and and, and yeah. he is um uh importantly he is also the deputy mayor of the village yes uh that's right um and now but that that happens right where he becomes he's sort of made the the mayor well i think he's already the deputy mayor it, he's kind of made functionally the mayor in the second episode because the actual mayor is MIA, but he, but he's, I think he has some administration, some, you know, deputy mayor position, which is why he is immediately elevated. Interesting. Uh, I didn't catch that in the rewatch of the first episode, but I think it's in the second episode actually. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so yes, he does. He becomes he becomes the mayor uh, in the second episode, which is why he he is you know, and you can see this right. It's it's nineteen forty uh, June nineteen forty, which we probably should have said in the beginning. Um, but the doctor in the town is obviously like a very important civic figure, and and him being a doctor, you can see why it sets up lots of opportunities for kind of ethical dilemmas uh, for him. But you can see why they would make a doctor the mayor uh, out of the gate, right? Right. So he goes to Schwartz's sawmill, um, and we also meet via Schwartz. Schwartz is asked early on by his wife to go get her some chickens. Uh, this is what they're doing, going out with their day. We see him go visit a woman, uh, Marie Germain. How did you? How did you? How did Marie strike you out of the gate? Well, so she is a farm farmer wife whose husband is away i think at the front and kind of we don't know what her uh what his whether he is alive or dead but she is also having guiltily having something of an affair with schwartz um who seems to feel no guilt about it um and um her her character is actually very hard for me to read at this stage. Um, she is, um, she plays a more substantial role in the second episode where she shows up as a, as a nurse, but it is not entirely clear to me who she is or what, what's animating her uh, in, in, in the first couple episodes at all, actually. Yeah. So I'm just going to lay this out here. My, my wife had asked me after we finished or just the other day, she asked me, um, I guess because the French village just kind of stays on your mind. She said, she said, who would you be? Like, which character would you be on the French village? And I, Marie right away is my answer. Um, not because I find Schwartz particularly attractive, but um, I think she is, uh, it's nice to see her again. She is, um, she's a, a tremendous character who I do think part of what is interesting about her is that it is very difficult to tell what she is thinking and what is motivating her. And that is, um, I, I would say that that holds a little bit uh, in certain ways. Um, so additionally to, to, in addition to Marie, we also meet uh, another young woman Lucien, who is the teacher who takes these kids on this walk. And I would say that for the people who have, I've, they've, they've heard me talk about the show. And so they watch it. This scene is a make or break scene that, that Ben mentioned, uh, where the plane comes over and shoots and, and two of the children 
are killed as well as the other teacher who she has been sort of flirting with this whole time. And they do seem like there's the thing about that scene that's crazy is like there's a cannon just kind of in the bushes uh, and the kids go play on it and the teachers kind of let them. Um, but but one of the complaints I hear is not just about the fact that this scene is difficult to watch, but people say that this the way that this scene unfolds just doesn't seem plausible, that that there is a a detachment uh, that that makes it feel inauthentic in some way. Did that did it strike you like that at all? Not at all. It struck me as uh, the kind of thing that um, the hyper realism of it makes it seem detached, make creates the sense of detachment. Um, you know, we have a a, a culture in which. Uh, if a field trip goes awry and a teacher and a couple of students get killed and one student gets lost in the bush, this is national news and it's, um, uh, you know, a huge deal. And in the context of 1940s France, 1940 France, when the Germans are rolling in, um, you know, the number of people being displaced, killed, by the hour is immense and everybody is sort of shell-shocked by it, but detachment is one of the emotional responses that you have when the entire world is falling apart. It's, I mean, it's basically people go into sort of dissociative states and um, and so I, I actually, one of the reasons I thought it was hard to watch was it wasn't cartoonish at all. It was, uh, you know, I thought it was a, a pretty reasonable account of what it would be like if a German uh, fighter plane decided to strafe your field trip. So I really agree with that. And I hope that the person who wrote to me about this scene and, and thought that maybe the writing was bad, like comically bad because of the detachment of the scene. I not only do I agree with with your assessment, uh, there's also two other components. One is that this particular character, Lucien, has like an kind of a weird affect the whole way through. Like events do tend to kind of wash over her the whole time. She in particular has this detachment that you're talking about, though I think um, you're right that the, the one of the things to me that I love about this show is it is different than uh, the sensibility is completely different than if it had been done by an American. Right. If Americans had done this show, it was an American show, there would be lots of swells of music. They would sort of constantly be telling you what to think in a situation. There'd be lots of clues uh, or cues to be like, this is the bad guy. This is the good guy. The, this European sensibility that they have provides none of that. Yeah. So this is actually a particular feature of European um, uh, Holocaust film. Um, so there's a, um, uh, if, uh, the, the, the great French, uh, movie Au Revoir Les Enfants by Louis Malle, which is a kind of autobiographical film about the, uh, uh, the priests with whom, uh, who ran his school and the Jewish children that they tried to hide from the SS, um, uh, is very similar to this in in affect, right? There's just a kind of um, uh, it's 
told in this very matter of fact way, you don't get a lot of cues from the direction um, about how to, how to, how you're supposed to feel about it or, or even what's going on in the characters' heads. It's just presented as this, uh, this thing that happens. Um, and there are some very great German films, um, uh, uh, by, uh, there are two of them involving, uh, both involving the actress Lena Stoltz. Um, uh, one, uh, it's called, called in English, the nasty girl, which is not a reference to, uh, anything sexual, um, and the other one called the White Rose, which are very similar in um, in that they just kind of lay the story out and let you do with it what you want to do with it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, I, you know, even listening to you talk, one of the things that I am sort of determined to do is to get better versed in a lot of the um, even more contemporary uh european shows that are out there like we have access to them uh and it was one of those things where like you know sometimes i'm going through netflix or whatever and i'm thinking there's just like not that much i'm interested in and then you watch something like the french village or for me i watched it and thought i bet there's other shows like this (laughs) that are that are in other countries uh and and i I say that actually I, i mean i've watched plenty of uh of like the ones that really rise to the top um plenty of of foreign shows assuming that they you know kind of make a splash in the united states but i bet that there's a whole bunch that that don't reach that level i mean i don't meet that many people um i think it was fortuitous that my father-in-law and david from i saw them in close succession and they both both mentioned the show i don't hear that many other people talk about it so i have a question for you about mr schwartz which is uh in the in the first episode he my assumption about him, because he's got a German name that is often associated with Jewish families, is that he's Jewish. But then early in the second episode, somebody uh, dies and he crosses himself, which is a decidedly non-Jewish response to somebody dying. Um, and so my question is, without giving a spoiler, is uh what are we supposed to think Schwartz is? Is he, you know, he owns a a, a factory or a, a sawmill. He's kind of uh, a little bit of a, a, a almost a stereotype Jewish businessman, uh, except that he appears to be Catholic, um, at least in religion, if not in race. So one narrative possibility is he's ethnically Jewish, uh, but a convert to Catholicism, which lots of people, would that was a common thing. One possibility is that the crossing himself is actually a a mistake um, and that he's supposed to be Jewish. Uh, And the third possibility is that the name is a coincidence and he's just a townsman. Uh, after the first two episodes, I genuinely couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, well, I, I can't answer your question without some spoilers. And so I won't. Um, but I will say that I do think it is purposely ambiguous. Um, and I think that there's, um, especially in the early episodes, 
which I think is one of the strengths of the show's kind of um, showing and not telling. Uh, I was struck in the first episode on the same point. Uh, there is the principal of the school, Mrs. Morehange. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her name, but um, she is the one that Lucienne, after they see these kids killed by the plane, they go back to the school um, and the mothers are, are finding out about there's two boys who've, who've been shot uh, and a priest is in the, is in the classroom um, and everybody begins to kneel and you see the principal who has been comforting Lucienne and sort of saying, you know, both scolding her for, for her bad judgment and taking them out on this trip, but also comforting her and telling her it will be okay. in this way that, that is um, with the officiousness of the kind of person you trust, that you know, is going to be a leader, but you see them get on their knees to pray and you watch her be standing for too long before she looks around, notices everybody else is getting down on her knees, getting down on their knees, and then she does the same. Um, I don't know if it's a, a spoiler, but I think that is that is the show showing you that there are people in this town, most of whom are Catholic, some of whom are Jewish. Yes, and of course, there's another faction that's in the town, which is uh, communists. Um, and... That presents right in the first episode uh, the people who work in the sawmill, uh, both Spanish and some not, are very clearly party activists, and the police come kind of looking for them, which is a uh, clearly meant as an introduction to the uh, the potential repressive apparatus of the French state that the Germans are going to inherit and be in a position to try to use. Um, and of course, for those who know the history of the French occupation, you know, that they were used very, very successfully. And the French police, of course, become one of the principles, so sort of some of the biggest French war criminals were, you know, local police chiefs, basically. And um, and so there's a, a not so subtle introduction to that uh, through the introduction of these police characters in the first episode. Yes. So at the sawmill, so lots of things are happening at the sawmill. Um, the Dr. Larche has gone there to deliver a baby. That is where Schwartz works. It's his place. One of his employees is uh, Marcel Larche, uh, who is the brother of Dr. Daniel Larche. And uh, the fact that they are brothers is a key element here. But but while Daniel is the humanist doctor, uh, his brother um his brother Marcel is the Bolshevik, the communist. Uh, and I don't know enough about sort of communist history to, to they refer to them both as communists and Bolsheviks. So I assume they are mostly interchangeable. Uh, communist is a more umbrella term. It would include Trotskyists. It would include, uh, uh, you know, people who were, I guess this is before the Sino-Soviet split, of course. So, um, but yeah, by and large, uh, in the context of France in 1940, the party 
was a Stalinist party. Uh, it was quite loyal to Stalin up until 53 and his death. And uh, and so, yeah, this is a Bolshevik, um, you know, this is the Communist Party of France, which, you know, was pretty, uh, pretty significantly directly Moscow controlled uh, for a very long time. Gotcha. Well, so... At the sawmill, so this is when the cops show up. And these two cops, to your point earlier about um, the role that the local police played, we meet a very important character named uh, Marchetti, uh, who is the young cop. And he's with kind of an older, um, brusker, uh, more hirsute partner uh, named uh, Curvern. Um, And he has come back from Dijon, where he is in an intelligence position, this young guy, Marchetti. Uh, but we get a sense of, of who he's going to be uh, when not only is he the one showing a real fervor for busting the communists uh, and really trying to push it uh, while, while kind of the German tanks are are rolling in, at which point, you know, uh, Kervern says, like, this isn't this isn't as big as priority right now. Uh, but they go back to the office and there's this, this telling scene where Kervern is kind of just looking out the window as the troops are coming in and shooting people. Um, you know, there's, there's this chaos in kind of the town square and people are being killed. Um, and they're just kind of watching from their police station. Uh, and Marchetti says, I hope the Krauts will let us reestablish order. Yes. Go ahead. Well, so this is by the way, quite historically accurate. Um, the in the years immediately prior to the invasion, the prime minister of France is a man named Leon Blum, who was a Jewish and be a socialist. And the reactionary forces, which was, you know, roughly 40, 45, 50 percent of France, uh, had a slogan um, which was quite widespread, which was better Hitler than Blum. And, you know, it was an active association with foreign fascist forces over domestic left and Jewish forces. And this is, of course, a kind of historical remnant of the old battle in France from 40 years earlier between the Dreyfusards and the anti-Dreyfusards. And those, that fissure is still here in the better Hitler than Blum. And you know, there was a faction of the French right that it wasn't quite that they welcomed the Nazis. It was that they, given a choice between the a, 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 a between a, a French state that was a left state, whether a socialist, whether run by the socialists or run by the Communist Party, and uh, that was accepting of Jews as a, as citizens and fascism, they actually didn't, even before the Nazi invasion, they had slogans that privileged the, uh, you know, that preferred the lat- the, the fascists to the leftists and the Jews. And that, the, so I think that, that scene is a, is a real reference to, to that, um, to, to that pre-existing fissure in France that really dates back to 
you know, to the Dreyfus affair in 1897. I'm so glad you decided to do this because you know all kinds of uh, fun stuff. Uh, it's a period of history I have spent a lot of time with. Um, and I also think actually, you know, Anne Applebaum has written about how the fissure in France between the Dreyfusards and the anti-Dreyfusards is actually the best way to understand the Trumpists and the anti-Trumpists. That it's a it's a, a a very deep. I mean, she talks about it also in the context of Poland. That the thing that 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 we have a you know she lives in Poland and her husband is a Polish politician. Um, but she describes you know reading the history of the the Dreyfus affair and in France and realizing that this basic fissure has never gone away. And I think when you hear the cops saying, looking at the German tanks, and instead of seeing, oh my God, the barbarians have breached the gate, seeing, well, maybe they'll let help us deal with the leftists and the Jews. Like, that is exactly what that's a reference to. Yep. Yep. Um, I think the only other notable thing I want to point out in the first episode, and then we can do kind of a quick thing on the second, um, is there? there's a conversation... Um, they leave the sawmill and Schwartz and Marcel. So the businessman and the Bolshevik are together in a car. And um, he is angry. The businessman Schwartz is angry at Marcel because the cops have showed up because they see um, they have a flyer that they've been able to identify and kind of uh, figure out that it was coming from the sawmill. Not that many people have printing presses at this time. And so, uh, and leafleting is sort of the main a uh, form of propaganda or or an act of dissidence. Uh, and so the cops are trying to sniff out where the printing press is, who's using it. And they know it's coming from the sawmill. So Schwartz is mad. He's yelling at Marcel. What's interesting to me about that scene is that Schwartz absolutely knows it's Marcel, knows they're communists, uh, and is only, he's not, he doesn't care. He didn't, he doesn't care that, um, he doesn't care that they're communists. He only cares that he himself was put into got in trouble for it or potentially could have gotten in trouble for it. Did you have any reaction to that scene? Only that it feels really familiar to me. I mean, I think this is um this is not merely a creature of of um uh 1940 in France. This is a creature that I think most Jewish families will have some uh intimacy with that you know there are the 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 Jewish world of that period and down to the present day uh has you know has these families where you know one one brother is a bolshevist activist and the other owns a factory and you know, and they have to have, you know, Passover and Thanksgiving together, right? And that is something that, you know, and one rolls the eyes, rolls eyes at the other's bourgeois uh, 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 belief in the system, and the other is really annoyed and afraid that the uh, first brother's uh, use of his sawmill to print flyers is going to get him in trouble. And um, and that like that actually feels 
um, like, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, there, there were many, many, many pairs of brothers in the United States in that exact period of time that had, you know, for which that is a metaphor for their interactions too. And certainly in, in every central European, uh, central European country and Western European country as well. So the point you're making is a great one and a true one, although the Schwartz and Marcel are not brothers, but, but viewers, but the point you're making is still right because Marcel is Daniel's brother, the doctor. And that is exactly the dynamic that they experience. Where sorry, I had my I had my who's who's brother confused. No, that's okay. It, because the point you make is exactly right, and it, it's a central it's a central theme between the two brothers. Where sort of the doctor humanist, it's slightly different, but it's the doctor humanist, um, but who is pretty apolitical against the brother who is extremely ideological, and the frustration between the two of them at both the um, the sort of strict neutrality uh versus you know the dogmatism uh of the other and then their relationship but the, the, what's interesting to me about schwartz is sort of the capitalist the businessman uh is also the apolitical nature in which he thinks about things um and and how he you know with his affair and everything else you can already sort of see i think it's coming through in the first episode that schwartz is a person who cares a lot about schwartz um, and not necessarily anything bigger or broader. So then we go into the second episode, which is about two weeks later. The Germans are in town, and they are they've killed a bunch of people. Um, and there's a whole lot of people taking refuge in a church. And the entire episode is basically about the dynamics of this church inside this church and it's um I, so this is where the questions of to what extent does who cooperate and why becomes acute all of a sudden right away because you got to get medicine to the church because people are having dysentery because there's a wanted communist in the church and the germans are pretty clearly willing to kill as many people in the church as possible if they don't turn them over. And by the way, there are some people who are hiding guns in the church, and there are some legitimate concerns about uh, how many of people are going to get killed because these guns are in the church, which is supposed to be a sanctuary. Um, so here is the part where I looked at it and I said, okay, now I understand why Sarah is, uh, uh, you know, like it, it hits you pretty hard right at the beginning of the second episode when Larche comes back to town um, and is immediately informed by the commanding German officer that he is now his official hostage and um, he will be the implication, though it's never stated quite directly is that if shootings at German soldiers don't stop, he'll be killed. That's right. Which is a, and, and like sort of a constant theme, this idea. And, and this is why, um, you know, somebody made this comment about the show when I was talking about it uh, in terms of complicity, or maybe even they were making the point 
but uh, talking about it in terms of just the way that current politics, there's a lot of people making a fair number of moral compromises, um, and there's a lot of Faustian bargains being made. And the the observation that, that that this person made is like, yeah, no one, no one had a gun has a gun to anybody's head here in uh, you know 2020 America, which is exactly right, right? Lots of the compromises and Faustian bargains are being made for reasons of power or, 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 uh, advancement. And, um, but, you know, in this case, uh, people are having to make very quick decisions about things and the, the Germans are constantly leveraging innocent lives to get what they want. They, they will say, we will start killing people if we don't get this or that. Um, and one of the most interesting things about, to me, about the church scene is the way that most of these people now who, this whole town are not, obviously not everybody, but a lot of the town is now forced into this confined space. Think of all the dynamics, all of the the uh, different ways that people, you know, are mad at each other, the old grudges, right? These people have all lived amongst each other for, for decades, one assumes, and they they know each other or have a sense of each other, and there's probably people they don't like, but now there's an occupying force, and they're all suffering together. And uh, but of course, the first thing that starts happening is is this idea of like what they're they're being told to turn on their own, to turn people in, to find people, to root them out, um, and that 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 is that is the crux of this. I don't know the sort of emotional tension of the episode. Yeah. So a couple of a couple of thoughts on this episode, which I think is you know was gripping and um uh and very powerful. The first is that you know we have this historical understanding of the occupation of France that it was actually rather brief. Um you know it begins in 19 uh 1940 and the allies reinvade in in uh, at the time of Normandy, and sweep across northern France, and the you know come up through through Sicily, and the Germans are sort of driven out over the course of forty four forty five, um, and so it's a relatively discrete period of time. But one of the things this episode does very effectively is create a sense of timeless menace. Right, they're here. You have no idea how long they're going to be here. You, they're sweeping across Europe. Maybe they are the new rulers, and um, and all of the you know, and you actually don't even have time to think about it because they're making demands on you, and you know, people are you're in a church and people are dying of dysentery, and you need some some medicine, um, and by the way some of the people uh want to collect guns and shoot at them um and so you are just dealing with a reality that is um that you know doesn't have an end date on it it it's not like well if you if if we can just hold out for 3 years you know the allies will come and you know and land at normandy right they don't know any of this and um and i think the the sort of sense of it as this horrible thing 
is happening and it has no beginning and it has no end is is very effectively conveyed in that church. And it is an essential point about the psychology um, and uh, about the evolution of the show um, and I'm sure the evolution of the time in reality, which is in the beginning, for all these people know, like the Germans are the new Boston town and will be forever. And so people are making decisions uh, based on who is in power at the moment and with because that's their reality, yeah, not knowing when it will end, um, you know, there's a strong incentive to go along with the new Boston town and to show that you're on their team. Uh, and it, and certainly among the bureaucrats. Um, but, but the other thing I, I just notable about this episode that is, is kind of seared into my brain is, uh, you know, the fact that I think you could, you could think of a lot of ways they could have conveyed, uh, the, the horror of this particular situation, but having, so many of the people in the church basically just suffering from from dysentery and there being sort of nowhere to go to the bathroom and everyone is sick and there's no medicine and the babies there's new babies and they have dysentery um that kind of there's a way in which that it it is it is gripping and scary and and so human right about the frailty of the human body and um that that I thought created in this in this thing like a real sense of panic like it is the the guns and and that is all scary but it is it is the health and sort of sanitation and the immediacy of that situation that drives uh i think a lot of the feeling in this episode yeah and also the the subplot in there that the baby who has been delivered in episode one who the doctor's wife has been caring for while her the baby's mother it, who has a uh a, a a post delivery um bleeding uh and his life is in danger she tries to he tries to get her uh to a hospital and they and in the meantime they're caring for the baby and of course fall in love with the baby um and in this episode, we learn that the mother has died and there's a question of like, what's going to happen to the baby? And the the nuns in the church want to make sure the baby gets uh, repatriated uh, to Spain with the baby's family and Hortense, the doctor's uh, wife, who is not 45, um, wants to keep the baby um, and so that is all who then, of course, gets sick as well. And so that's all kind of playing out as the Germans are, you know, holding her uh, husband, who has, of course, now become the mayor, effectively, hostage. Uh, and he's trying to manage an epidemic. And there are a bunch of communists in the church who are hiding weapons and who the Germans want to find and kill. And so it's a, it's this little cauldron in which this poor man who is really just trying to uh save lives um 
is suddenly in a position where he is the point of contact for the Germans at the point of a gun. He is negotiating with the communists over their weapons. He is uh, administering to patients. And you can totally see how this turns into something that would later be called collaboration without anybody ever making a decision, aha, now for evil reasons of my own, I'm going to collaborate with the occupying Germans. Yes. Uh, hey, where do you come down on uh, the, the baby? Are you, are you on the, the team? Uh, are you pro-nun, the nuns taking the baby and trying to repatriate it? Uh, are you pro-Hortense uh, wanting to uh, basically keep the baby for herself? Um, I am in a wartime setting uh, where I have very little confidence that the nuns could actually get the baby. I even identify the baby's family. I am uh, generally in favor of... Uh, people who are in a position to care for a baby in a wartime setting who have the baby taking care of the baby um, and not exposing it to needless risk of travel to uh, reunite with family who have not been identified and don't even know the baby exists. Uh, although I do think after the war, uh, there might be a situation where the family comes looking for the baby and you would have a very difficult situation. And that happened to many, many babies, um, particularly Jewish babies during the war. Yeah. I think one of the things that I love about the baby is that um, the, the Hortense and Dr. Larche think that the baby's name is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which of course is what the mother kept calling the baby uh, or not calling the baby. She was saying it to the saying baby. It to the I baby. Love you. <laughs> and it just, she was saying, I love you. And they heard, all they heard was take Yero. Uh, and so that's what they name him, which I've always thought was just, I don't, it's, it's a, it's a, it's sweet and sort of funny. Yes. It's an excellent little touch. Um, and uh, I, um, and I, uh, uh, I found it a uh, very, it's, it's a very funny little thing in the middle of a very not funny episode. Yes. Um, well, I have lots of, there's th lots to talk about with Takiero as, as time goes on. Uh, I think I just, I don't know that we can have these podcasts be like the full length of a whole episode each time. Like if it takes us an hour to talk about two hours, is that? Well, that's half the, that's half the length of an episode. Cause it's, it's the length of one episode, not two. Right. It's the length of one episode. Right. So it's half the time. Do you think that's a, do you think our, this is a long, you can tell us listeners, does this, is this the right length? Should we try and tighten them up to a half an hour? Um, we can, we'll, we'll iterate. We'll iterate, as they say in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? So, so far right now, I'll probably ask you this every week. You feel like the recommendation was a good one? You're into this? Oh, I am. I am certainly eager to listen to, to watch the third and fourth episodes, which I will do for next week. 
and um and uh I have no reservations about the uh the recommendation so far. Well, I think that we'll bring guests in. As you mentioned, Ann Applebaum, she would be an excellent person to bring on and just chat with some of the, uh, I, I'm pretty, the reasons I wanted to do the podcast with somebody like you, you not like you, you in particular, um, is that I found myself wishing that I could like absorb all uh, ancillary art and history from this time to like better understand everything. Um, but you've done a lot of that. And so I love uh, hearing some of the context, the historical context. And I think there's other people who can bring interesting parts uh, to this too. And Anne's one of them. Excellent. Um, we will, we will, we will bring guests. We will bring uh, additional episodes and the listener can follow along watching the show or even not. What if like there are a group of people who will never watch the show but in Jonathan Last kind of way, just want your podcast about the show, Sarah. Do you know that that guy, JBL, and I hope he hears this, that guy once wrote a whole newsletter about the French village without ever having <laughs> watched an episode, only listening to me talk about it. That's excellent. It's like, you know, it's like the platonic Socrates, right? <laughs> uh, well, I just would like, to say in closing that I got to do my French Village podcast before JBL got to hike the Appalachian Trail. So point me. Um, thank you, Ben Wittes, uh, for this conversation. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me to do this with you. I'm excited about it. I can't wait. It's 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 only going to take us all year to get through. All It'll of take it. 40, ep 40 episodes. Yeah, 40 yeah. weeks, holidays. It's going to be a solid year of this, folks. So, Excellent. So settle in. All right, take care. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. Homme t'aime tous les amants. Et puis un jour, tu m'as quitté.